0: You're listening to Not The Wifey Type, the podcast, a cape-free zone where we share stories and break down strength and struggle narratives to reimagine lives with us at the center. I'm your host, Kayla Charleston. Now let's get into it. Well, hello again, everybody. This week is going to be the last solo episode of the season. The final three episodes of the season feature interviews from guests that I'm pretty sure you will enjoy. I'll be talking to a trauma specialist and love addiction expert about the ways that trauma informs our relationships, to a breakup coach about red flags in relationships, and to Dr. Moya Bailey, who coined the term misogynoir. But for today's episode, I'm going to share not Nine things I wish I was taught about dating in general and dating men in specific. So um, this was kind of an impromptu episode that I didn't have on my editorial calendar, but I've seen a lot of conversation around dating or lack of dating and loneliness that had me reflecting on my own experiences. So um, some of these things I'm going to say may seem obvious to some people listening, but I think that's part of the issue. When we're talking about dating, we kind of assume that certain things are common sense and don't need to be said or to be taught. However, that's not really a safe assumption to make, especially for women who are subject to pernicious messaging about dating and relationships. So just yesterday I saw... Um Mike Todd, who is a pastor known for his bad takes, or at least that's what I know him for, is his bad takes. Um, he was talking about how dating is a bad idea, and I'll let you listen to what he said, um, in his own words. Dating the word is not in the Bible. Like right? that that word's not in the Bible. But the concept of what we call dating, um, is honestly um practicing divorce it's like getting with people to then figure out if you kind of want to be with them and then you get out of it and then we're taught like as young people like try it as many times as you want to until you find the one but what you've done is you've formed unknowingly a habit of getting into things and getting out of them Oh, wow. I've never heard anyone say that. So, what ends up happening is when you get into a marriage and you're like, (laughs) they're better than everybody else. And oh, my God, I love them. And they bought me the right (laughs) ring. And you go all that other stuff. When it gets tough, you're like, the first reflex I know to do is get out of it. Yeah. And that's why divorce is higher right now than it's ever been. And the saddest part is it's almost the same in the church. So, it's it's the divorce. It's because we've, we've used this tool. So this set off all kinds of alarms while I was listening to it. First of all, divorce rates have been declining for at least the past 10 years. So he was flat out wrong about that. Like, I feel like he misrepresented divorce and and trying to portray it as you know, we've never seen divorce rates this high before. This is the highest rate in history. It's just not, it's not representative of what's, of what's really going on. But like, also more importantly, it's women who are more likely to initiate divorce. And it's often because marriage isn't fulfilling to them in ways that, you know, have been discussed on the show, like unfair balances of power and relationships and unequal division of labor. And on average, marriage benefits men more than more than women and the women who aren't happy with this arrangement have the option to leave unlike women in generations before us so if it seems like divorce rates are at a peak or are higher than they were in generations prior it has a lot to do with the fact that women weren't allowed, women didn't have the right to leave or to get divorced or um to have bank accounts or things that would allow them to build a life outside of a marriage or or proximity to men. So there's that. But basically the, what this pastor is teaching is to skip all those foundational experiences that clue you into the types of things you want and need in a partnership with the ultimate goal of sticking it out, you know, and staying with your spouse. And I'm just imagining how horrifying it would be or would have been for me to learn some of the things that I've learned after having already forged a legally binding commitment to someone else because I skipped dating altogether. So the advice he gave is priming women for dissatisfaction at best and abuse at worst. And it's also not lost on me that his advice about dating and like it being obsolete or it being you know a bad thing or a bad practice to to get into it echoes some of the new cell leaders that say dating is dumb and dating is pointless the common goal here seems to be to get women to settle for whatever men come our way and do whatever it whatever it takes or whatever we can to keep them, which is likely to our own detriment. And that's why I don't believe that the things that I'm going to list in this episode are necessarily obvious, because hegemonic ideas about dating will have Black women asked out every single time. And hegemony is something that I used to teach about. Um, it's particularly insidious because it involves dominance or control of one social social group over over another or others often without the use of force. So people under hegemonic control will go along with something, will go along with the will of the dominant group voluntarily or contentually versus being forced to do so, say, through violence. It's often culture or social norms that push people to act in accordance with the wishes of the dominant group. And the example that I liked to use when I taught about hegemony in the classroom was an Adam Ruins Everything video on engagement rings. And in the video, he talks about how before the 1930s, nobody ever bought diamond rings to symbolize love and marriage. And then in the late 1930s, the De Beers diamond cartel ran a massive ad campaign. And it said that basically the only way for a man to truly show his love was to buy diamonds. And it was a money grab so that this corporation could, um, make as much money as possible on, on the traditional engagement. And they also had a global, global monopoly on diamond mining. So they were able to like artificially restrict the supply of diamonds and charge like premium prices for diamonds under the guise that these are some, some rare stones when really they had a whole bunch of diamonds at their disposal. So. Basically, it all works because lots of people now get engaged and present diamond rings without questioning where the tradition came from. It's now a widespread cultural practice. And we even laugh at or make jokes about rings that are the wrong kinds of diamonds or the wrong size or um, those those engagement rings that look like Super Bowl rings because they got them little bitty diamonds. And it just, we, we make jokes about that and we laugh about it. But there's no law or no mandate that says you're not officially married unless there's a diamond ring involved. You're not under the threat of violence if you propose without a diamond, but that's the default expectation upon engagement. And that's how hegemony works. It becomes so deeply ingrained precisely because people go along with it unquestioningly, all the while it serves those in power. So in the case of engagement rings, it's capitalists who benefit. It's the, it's the, you know, people and the corporations and the companies who have who own resources um, that that benefit in the case of dating men it's men who benefit from hegemonic dating narratives and directives so I had an episode all the way back in season one about why black women are so attached to struggle love and it has a lot to do with struggle love as a hegemonic dating ideal like we, as black women are groomed in so many ways from youth to believe that our silence and our servitude is what makes us lovable and you know you hold your man down and you don't complain about it because that's your job is the backbone of the community and you know a lot of black women go along with this voluntarily because it's better to have a man who uh, dabbles a little bit outside of his relationship than to have no man at all. Or it's better to be split in the bill 50-50 while also doing most of the organizational and domestic labor in the home than to risk dying alone. All the while, men have no incentive to be more equitable in relationships because the, because cultural hegemony around dating and partnering normalizes them getting awarded for, awarded for simply showing up. And You know, while violence is unfortunately a part of, you know, too many Black women's stories, many of us are simply carrying out what we perceive to be our duties as Black women in, um, you know, Black communities. So... That's why I wanted to share some of the things that I wish I had been taught about dating men or before dating men, because none of this was explicitly said to me. And without anything to make me believe otherwise, I only had the hegemonic dating narratives to, to fall back on and to guide me in you know my my dating experiences. So the first thing that I wish I had been taught is that the shit is rigged. Like somewhere along the line, I was taught that this is a game and women are to compete for men. But if I, you know, we're going to be taught to compete for men, I wish someone had been honest about what it was I was competing for in the long run and the things that I had, you know, working against me as a black woman. So like... An ideal situation for a woman in our society who has competed and won would be to get a man that you love, who can provide for and protect you and and your family y'all's family it would also confer upon you the social status that comes along with being in a respectable union i.e a marriage and you know you live happily ever after in your little nuclear family that's what's presented as the prize for competing and playing to win and i needed someone to teach me about the trade-offs of winning the game and also um That in some cases, I wouldn't even be seen as an eligible player in the game. And by trade-offs, I mean, what do you give up in order to secure that prize? I think about the labor that women perform in keeping men's egos intact, choosing softer words, or framing things in ways that don't make men feel that their masculinity is being threatened or you know, what is what is the weight of that imposition over time of always having to soften your words and to make sure that you're not coming across as threatening to a man's masculinity? And who knows how he'll react if he does feel his masculinity is threatened. I also think about the ambitions that women tend to have to put on hold more than men for the good of the family, whether it's a career or a passion that has to take a back seat. Um, I think of how some women trade in community to wall themselves off and assume the identity of a married woman. Women who join the wives club and pride themselves on it so much that they they can't seem to relate to single women or they think single women are out to take their men. Like There's a reason why it's not hard to find men advising women to get rid of their single friends. And I can't imagine cutting myself off from some of the most deeply intimate relationships I've had just to say that a man is coming to my life. But there are so many little ways that women give up things to secure this quote unquote prize. So um, there's, there's also the fact that in some people's eyes, I'm not even deserving of the prize. I'm not even an eligible player and therefore cannot be granted the love and protection and provision that we're taught we're supposed to be playing for. There is a a really beautiful and stirring piece that was written by Shadi Devereaux called Decolonizing Love in a World Rigged for Black Women's Loneliness, which I'll put in the show notes, but it's all about the ways in which the world is set up for us as Black women to be alone as punishment for not exhibiting the right kind of womanhood. And I want to read a little excerpt of from this article. And so it says, quote, Isolation and the threat of it are used to dominate us into submission when we fall outside of the lines of acceptable womanhoods, centering men's desire. Some of us fall outside of these lines by virtue of our refusal to extinguish our light, Others, by virtue of our birth, and even more for the crime of both, like Black trans women, queer women, sex workers, and any of us who refuse to conform. Many men of color subscribe to the socialization of what proper womanhood is and often come running with the rest of the world when white women are sad or lonely, while allowing women within their own communities to hold collective burdens alone. They sympathize with white women because they've been indoctrinated by a society that says white people are real humans and real womanhood is cis, white, and then light. Then it's labeled a preference to obscure the violence of its enforcement, end quote. And y'all know there are ways, there are so many ways that Um, we're said not to do womanhood correctly. We're too loud. We're too fat. We're single mothers. We wear bonnets in public. We wear weave and so on and so on and so on. These reasons are used to justify why we're alone and why we're undeserving of the ultimate prize of like love and protection and the social status of marriage when really we know that these are just um disguises for anti-blackness and massage noir and I don't point these things out to make victims out of black women, but for me knowing this earlier on would have been more empowering because it's very easy to internalize that something is wrong with us or something runs wrong with me while navigating a society that says we're unworthy of love but like it's not us it's it's that the game is rigged and without understanding this it's like, playing a game without knowing all the rules or, ha- or or playing by a different set of rules, right? It's like, how do you win and you don't even know all the rules or have access to the same options as others? So the second thing I wish someone had taught me was that this shit is optional. This dating shit is optional and or that I can date on my, at my own pace. So throughout my life, I've had friends who were serial daters or serial monogamous like Um, one of my childhood friends got a boyfriend in high school that she stayed with for like seven years and all the way through, um, until her last years of college where she dumped him and then moved on with the next guy. I've had other friends who weren't necessarily in quite such long-term relationships, but dated, um, and replacement faster than I could really ask what happened to the last one. And it used to really, 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 really baffled me that it was possible for them to find so many guys that they liked <laughs> and that liked them so quickly after the last one. And, you know, I, I felt a lot of pressure. Not that they were putting pressure on me, but just that I thought I was supposed to be doing what they were doing and that there was something wrong with me because I wasn't. And the holdup for me was that I was very slow to be moved by by men or by boys. And, you know, they can be cute or whatever, but if there wasn't something about them that ignited something in me, I I would be bored. And I didn't want to have to search for that thing. I wanted it to be apparent. And honestly, I believe I'm smarter than most men, um, and I'm not ashamed to say that, not because I think men inherently are not smart, but men are socialized in such a way that they learn to discredit women's perspectives and opinions and thoughts and contributions, and a lot of them think we're like emotional and can't make rational decisions, and I feel like that severely limits their ability to fully see the world. It's, it's similar to how Black people and white people live in different realities, and black people, we understand how to navigate white norms and white standards because it's survival. But a lot of white people are clueless about the realities that we face or our norms or our customs or our standards or whatever. So some of them are so blinded by their prejudice for toward black people and people of color that they behave in, um, you know, they behave to their own detriment and do things that are not smart, like support Trump. And to me, a lot of men are similar in this way. Even if it's not as overt as like being a Trump supporter, a lot of men are biased against women's experiences and perspectives. And that's always been a sign of an unevolved man to me. So that's been a key thing that's slowed me down in terms of dating. And I feel like that's okay. Like I had to learn that I'm not trying to meet a dating quota. I'm I and I'd rather be more intentional but intentional about the people I share myself with than wasting time and and energy with people who um don't move me in any in any way. Also, I realized at some point that for all the dating and relationships that I watched friends go through, none of that was situations or setups that I wanted for myself. And I'm not knocking my friends at all because we've all grown. I'm also not saying that I knew to choose better men um, than them because even the men that got past my initial filters have proven to be disappointing before. So I'm just saying that if you don't want to be out here, you don't have to be out here. And there's no reason for you to make yourself be out here or to force something into being a relationship that doesn't have to be um, just to say that you're in a relationship or just to say that you're dating or whatever compulsory dating is how you end up in situations that don't suit you and then you look up and wonder why the fuck you're still there but you've invested so much time that you don't want to throw it all away and start over so you don't have to do it if you don't want to do it I wish somebody could explain that to me um The third thing I wish somebody had taught me is that it's not an audition. So for auditions, you kind of discover an announcement for a part or a role or a position. You show up to demonstrate your skills and your abilities and um, judges, evaluate you. They do all the evaluating and then they, they turn around and decide if they want to award you to part. And that's exactly how I used to approach dating. Like a man, I would discover a man, he would show interest. And if he was smart enough to pique my interest, then it's like everything else fell by the wayside in terms of compat- compatibility. And I left it all up to him to determine. And tell me whether I fit into his vision. I tried proving my wit and my charm by being funny, thinking I'd win uh, if I was interesting enough. I learned favorite dishes and did things like cook them on a surprise Tuesday, thinking I get points for random thoughtfulness. I even played up how laid back I was, thinking I would win for being low maintenance. Like, once I initially decided that I liked a guy, the goal became getting chosen instead of exploring our connection, whether he met my needs, and what it could mean for us to have a future together. So, I remember one guy I was dating. Uh, was telling me about what he wanted for himself within the next five to ten years and he said he wanted to live in a ranch style house ducked off from everybody else um, with lots of animals including a pig and he wanted his place to be the spot where he hosted like even though it was ducked off he wanted his friends to be able to come and like Uh, he hosts things like dinner parties or, you know, if his friends needed a place to escape with their old lady because they were having problems, he wanted his spot to be the place that they go to, whatever. So I could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure he didn't say he wanted to have a ranch with animals, but a ranch style house, which is a one story house. And he wanted the animals to be up in the house too. And uh, I was sitting there, <laughs> when he was telling me this, I was cringing at the idea of a pig being in the house, but I honestly, truly... Was sitting there trying to convince myself that I could picture living like that. And a healthier approach to dating would have been for me to realize in that moment that that nigga was on some shit that I was not on. But it was, it, it was a lot later. Oh, it was, I won't say a lot later, but it wasn't until after we ended things or after we stopped dating. And I was reflecting on our time together that I realized I was trying to fit myself into his vision for his life. And I, had not, I hadn't given any thought to my vision for my own life. And I, I wanted so bad to be chosen that I wasn't doing the work of seeing how or if our visions aligned in such a way that it would be feasible for us to share a life together. And they didn't. So I really had to learn that I wasn't there to prove myself. And I'm glad I did before I ended up in a more formal arrangement, such as marriage with someone who um, let me get in where I fit in instead of intentionally building something together. Now, I actually have a list of things I would like in a partner. And I know that women get ragged on for having lists, But I don't think it's a bad thing to have. I really question criticism that says women who make lists are too picky because it's not like you're choosing what you want to have for lunch or picking out your outfit for work. You're making decisions about giving people access to you and to your life in ways that could have unforeseen and potentially long-lasting impacts. So for me, having a list has been helpful um, to stay grounded And to not get swept away in a fantasy of marriage or partnership that's tantamount to even my own happiness. So if I ever find myself getting too wrapped up in someone and it seems like it's unfounded based on what they've shown me so far, I go back to my list and I see how this person compares to the things that I said I wanted when I wasn't starry-eyed and viewing them through rose-colored glasses. Especially especially since um, we're taught not to trust our own instincts as women. Like what what was important to me before this person came along? Has that changed? If so, is it a result of them and is the change for the better? Um, These are all like important things that I keep in mind and that a list or having written something down helps me to keep in mind. The fourth thing that I wish I had been taught or I had known is that I wish someone had taught me how to communicate my feelings and my needs. And this is one probably that seems obvious or like something that doesn't need to be stated, but it's definitely something that I was not equipped to do in relationships. It started by not being empowered to do it at home. I grew up in a household where feelings weren't validated. If you were bothered by something or hurt by something, then you know what? That's life. That's how things are. There was no space for me to express how I felt and process it safely. So I quickly learned that it was best for me not to even voice these things. So I don't, and I don't really blame anybody for that. It's likely a result. It's like, it's like a cycle. Um, my mom grew up in a household where there wasn't space for her feelings. And when it was her turn to parent, it it hadn't been modeled for her. So it wasn't something that she incorporated into her parenting. And what happened modeled for for her was a mother who got shit done and kept the household functioning. And that's what my mom replicated. So, um, as I started to form romantic attachments, it became clear how my upbringing played a role in how um, how I communicated or, or didn't communicate. So um, I, I had men who would claim that I was distant or aloof, or they'd say it was hard to get to know me, or they, they couldn't read me very well. And it was the strangest thing to me because I would like them, but I wouldn't know how to express that. Or... On the other hand, if there was something that bothered me, I also didn't really know how to voice that. And um anytime I'd have something to say that I felt like risked exposing myself, I would go over <laughs> I would go over my lines like a million times before the moment came and even even when it came, I would still stumble. Um, I was still stumbled through what I was going to say, probably sounding very timid and very unsure of myself. And and basically, I was anticipating getting shut down and and being dismissed. And it's because I had been so used to it happening at home that I came to see it as the norm. And somehow the stakes were raised when it was someone that I liked romantically, which made it even harder. Um, So it was my upbringing initially that made expressing myself a challenge, but it was reinforced in earlier relationships where I tried to express myself and was met with dismissal or gaslighting, which basically cemented that, you know, the messages that I learned at home, that it's better off, that I just not express or communicate how I feel. So I recognize how valuable it would have been Um, to get practice sharing my feelings and communicating my needs in a space where they were acknowledged and addressed. And it would have made it a lot easier to do in relationships. So as an adult, Um, And in an effort to be better at communicating, I've learned to acknowledge, to address, to validate, and to honor my own feelings and needs. And so that has meant not waiting on others to give me permission to feel a way or to tell me that my feelings in response to something are appropriate. That way, when I do share my feelings, it stops the fear of the person dismissing them and is more so about the fact that I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting it off my chest and dealing with a person who's dismissive is another story. But I've also learned to stop and ask myself what I need at any given moment and try to do what's within my power to get it. Checking in with myself is not something that I like knew to do. Um, you know, really being present in my body and paying attention to how I feel. Do I feel good? If I do, great. If I don't, what do I need in order to get to a place where I feel good? Whether it's needing to take a walk because I feel overwhelmed or needing to tell somebody how I like or don't like to be treated. Um, it's it's all been an exercise in reparenting myself and giving myself the things that I was missing as a child. And now um, I just don't deal with anyone who jeopardizes my progress and isn't responsive to my needs. The next one is kind of related, but number five is that I wish someone had taught me how to set boundaries. And this is important when dating men because a lot of men will show up and take as much as they can get while they can get it. And like I said before, I used to try to be the laid back cool girl that wasn't pressed about relationships or titles or any of that stuff. And all that ended up doing was giving men unfettered access to me for next to nothing in return. So, for example, a guy I like would say he wasn't ready for a relationship, but I would still allow him to talk to me every single day. We would have sex. We would spend days at a time together with each other's friends and sometimes family members. I If, if those aren't relationship-type activities, then I'm not really sure what are. And then conveniently, when I would work up the nerve to air grievance, suddenly we weren't technically in a relationship not suddenly because I knew all along we were in a relationship but conveniently we weren't in a relationship and that used to make me so mad but it was my fault for not setting a boundary that to access me in all those ways required a committed relationship and I also hadn't grasped that for a lot of men, the level of decency they show you depends on what box they put you into and how well you follow the guidelines within that box. So to some men, wives deserve more decency than baby mamas, girlfriends more than cuddy buddies or side chicks, women they want sexual access to more than women they find unattractive. And for me, not to set any boundaries around access to me it was like, oh, you're cool with just being the girl I'm talking to. Well, bet then you don't get to air grievances and especially not if you want me to stick around so I would be invested with no boundaries to speak of and upset when my lack of boundaries blew up in my face and um it was it was uncomfortable and hard when I first started setting boundaries but it was so 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 important to my emotional health and my well-being because of like the tendency I had to get involved with emotionally unavailable men, and that is also a whole entire pod separate podcast episode on its own that I I may share. But um, learning to set boundaries has saved me so much headache, like in that regard. And at first, I thought I was being mean. I thought I was being unreasonable. I thought I was being unyielding, and it felt weird to say no. We can't talk on the phone for hours because you're not my nigga and you're not trying to be or no, I don't want to be your friend while you figure out what you want. I stopped getting upset when things didn't go my way or the way that I wished for them to go because my boundaries kept me from getting so invested. And as a bonus, it got easier and easier with time to set boundaries. So basically with practice. The sixth thing is I wish Someone taught me to have expectations for how men expressed interest in me. This is less about saying that there is one set way for every man to show interest and more about centering the way that I want to be courted and getting comfortable with holding those expectations. So it used to be that I preferred going Dutch with men. I am not proud to say that. It was, <laughs> it was like... It was a really strange mix of not feeling like I deserved getting free things without quote unquote doing something in return and also not wanting them to think I owed them something in return. But just like having no boundaries and and, and not being able to communicate my needs, it set me up for bare minimum. And again, I want to reiterate that this is why... The stuff that I'm saying isn't necessarily obvious. It was not obvious to me because the status quo is for women to accept and show gratitude for male attention. Any male attention that we get um, unless you're intentional about, you know, combating hegemonic dating norms, then the the default is accepting bare minimum but thinking you're getting the most. And I also want to reiterate that what that pastor said about dating is part of of, you know, hegemony that has women taking what we can get it was dating that showed me what felt good and what didn't feel good when dealing with men um you know what left me feeling appreciated and valued versus used and dismissed I can't remember if I've told this story before because at this point we're at almost 30 episodes and I don't remember all the stories I've told at this point but um I dated a guy who called himself being spontaneous and instead of making plans that would give me time to get dolled up and to look nice, he would invite me somewhere with like an hour or two, you know, lead time. So I would just show up looking however, because, you know, he didn't bother to give me enough time to get, you know, dressed up fancy or whatever. So I wasn't going to bother to look nice. And (laughs) Only for him to ask me, do you ever get dressed up? And I guess he didn't realize that if he wanted to see me at my finest and looking at my finest, then he would give me time to get to that point. So it was through dating him that I discovered I like men who can plan and get shit done. Like ask me my availability and my interest, make arrangements and tell me where to show up. I like men who are generous with affection and compliments. Uh, when I step out and I look nice, I want you to tell me. I like men who understand that I'm not opening my purse for anything when we're together. I like men who subtly let their attraction be known, but that wait patiently for the green light to act on their desire to tear that ass up. I like gifts. I like for men to show up with flowers or an I heard you mention this, so here it is type surprise. Like the expectations are going to change from person to person, but the point is I had to learn what I liked and that it was okay to feel entitled to it in exchange for access to me. Because no one is owed access to me. And I set the terms under which they can have it. Just like every person has a right to do for themselves. I had to figure out how to value myself more. And stop seeing men paying for things as them doing something for me in exchange for nothing in return. Like what an awful way to think about blessing someone with my company you know, as like them getting nothing in return for something that they've done for me. I had to like the, the key to that was to ask and answer questions that highlighted what I like about myself to understand what it was that other people would gain from Having my company so once I started thinking about it in that way it was easier to shift my mindset from thinking they're not getting anything in return to considering it a loss for anyone who wouldn't be delighted to meet my expectations in order to have access to me and admittedly I think this is easier to do for some women than it is for others which brings me to my next point so number seven the thing that I wish someone had taught me is Um, the roles that, the roles of desirability, pretty privilege, beauty capital, and perceived femininity in affecting your chances of receiving decency or having your expectations met. I wasn't taught to have expectations, much less that I could use whatever beauty capital or desirability I could access to, to get those expectations met. And, I think my own access to pretty privilege or beauty capital is situational and depends on the context. In terms of beauty standards, neither my body nor my facial features are thin enough to conform to white ideals. And so I've only ever measured myself by our standards. And since young adulthood, I've considered myself to be pretty, but the kind of pretty that could be easily camouflaged rather than like a striking standout sort of beauty. So with, you know, eyes hidden behind thick frames and no makeup and my hair pulled back in a kinky puff, I can become unremarkable versus if I throw in, if I throw in some contacts um, if I make my hair emulate long wavy tresses courtesy of a braid out, and if I bat my, my, my scared eyelashes just right, then I can grab the attention of men who aren't color struck enough to still overlook me. And the same kind of applies for femininity for me. It's very situational. I can be abrasive at times with my strong convictions and, you know, my feeling smarter than most men, but then there are aspects of my personality of my personality that if I downplay my brilliance just right makes me seem closer to the delicate feminine ideal so I mentioned in uh I mentioned this in an interview with Rita Olds earlier this season when we were talking about authenticity and she told me um she had told me one day over lunch that there was something about me that she could see would make men want to protect me. And it kind of shocked me when she first said it, but it's something that I've heard echoed with men um, that I had just never heard articulated in that way, I think. And, you know, I'm a curious person. Um, and I, well, I'm a curious person with what I would call a an effervescent personality. I like to ask questions. Uh, random questions at that, random ridiculous questions. And in the company of others, I tend to be upbeat and bubbly. So I think those two things combined can make me seem kind of like childlike. Um And one guy I dated described it as a lightness about me and that I somehow managed to not be weighed down by the dogma of adulthood and like responsibilities and bills and needing to pay rent. And somehow I managed to still, you know, have a a lightness about me, a lightheartedness about me. And honestly, I wish I had known much sooner how to use these things to get more of what I wanted, to ask for more and to be more demanding. And I wish someone had taught me that, Men are willing to do more for you the more desirable you appear to them or the more you make them feel like men. Of course, I don't prefer to relate to men in this way, but I think understanding how this works is part of surviving men. And it's also it's also important to know the limits of beauty capital and femininity with men, especially for Black women, because our access to these things is already tempered by our Blackness. But when you're also... Fat or trans or dark skin or broad featured, it can further limit a person's ability to draw upon these tools to produce more desirable outcomes. That's why I think some of the popular talking points of of about like femininity for Black women, for example, are problematic because it presumes that all Black women can tap into femininity equally and use it to obtain safety and care and better you know higher value men and i just don't believe that's how it works you have centuries of dark skin coded as masculine and as animalistic as uncivilized you don't just throw a dress and some makeup and some heels on a black woman and think that it erases the centuries of color is anti-black misogynoir and I don't say these things for anyone who feel disempowered because like I said earlier I feel like it can be empowering to actually know the rules of the game to to know the rules of the game you're expected to play but you know, definitely use what you can to get what you want. Well, at least I believe in using what you can to get what you want, but also know that you are not the thing that needs correcting or adjusting or changing in order to deserve decency. You deserve decency regardless of what anybody says. So. Um, eight, I wish someone had taught me to be intentional about sex and the way that I use my body. So the only talk I got about sex was that it's all boys were after and they do anything to get it. And so naturally this fostered a distrust for boys. And a false sense of necessity to stifle my own sexuality, since obviously I was supposed to be busy keeping boys away from the goods. Um, I remember making a pact with my best friend in high school that we wouldn't sleep with more men than we would count on one hand, I guess, because more than that wasn't respectable. And so if sex was all boys wanted and they'd be dishonest to get it, then what did it make me if I gave it to them? So there was never any discussion of what it meant for me to want sex, to be sexual, or to have consensual sex. Like That's a huge part of why when I got my first boyfriends and they wanted sex, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I wanted it to. I didn't know how to have a conversation with them about it because it just wasn't normalized to, to talk about me as a sexual being in my household, whereas you know, I got I got talked to about boys who, who wanted sex, but never about my own desires. So it was, this was also a source of embarrassment as I started having more sexual experiences, but still didn't necessarily know how to allow myself to be a sexual person and to communicate what I liked. So there's this one experience that I'll never forget for the way it turned from sexy to chagrin. And so I was with a guy at my place and it was about to go down and he was sitting directly, he was sitting on the couch and I was sitting on his lap facing away from him. So my back was to his front and he, you know, had his hand on the good stuff. He was playing around. Um, And then he used his other hand to take one of my hands and put it on top of the hand that was doing the work. And he was He whispered in my ear, show me how you like to be touched or something like, show me how you like to be touched or show me how you want me to please you or something like that, something to that effect. And that was probably the sexiest thing that I had ever experienced uh, that far in life. Just a guy who was asking to be shown how to please me. And after I got over how sexy it was, there was the embarrassment because I didn't know how to show him. (laughs) I didn't know what I wanted him to do. And so like, even though I had had sex before, I still didn't think of myself as a sexual person who liked specific types of pleasure given in specific ways. So like, that was a really embarrassing moment for me because I just kind of froze up like (laughs) a moment that was supposed to be really sexy and whatever. It was, Embarrassing. So I still kick myself for all the sex that I didn't have when I was younger because I was on the defensive and I was trying to be like a good respectable girl. I wish that I could have spent more time cultivating empowering sexual experiences that centered my pleasure rather than trying to gatekeep the puss. And last, I wish someone had taught me how and when to end things and what a joy it can be to to do so. This is probably another one, or I imagine that this is one that seems obvious to other people. Like if you don't like something, just leave. But it used to be that I would remain in a situation with a man until he saw fit to leave it, even if I didn't particularly like how things were going. Even when I knew things were over, I'd still hang around to wait for him to make it clear that it was over. You know, I and I would get anxious over how it would happen. Like would he be nice about it or would it be some kind of callous display of disregard? Like it's, it's, it's like I viewed myself as the object of the relationship to be acted upon by the man rather than a subject in the relationship with the agency to come and go as I please. And it's really hard to pinpoint why that is, mostly because I don't really want to admit that that's how bad I wanted to be chose. Like, I wouldn't give up on the idea that he would choose me until he gave up on me first but oh my god the joys of telling men no of of rejecting a man that I have no interest in of ignoring a man that is not entitled to my response of blocking a man who's not entitled to access to me anymore or at all because no one's ever entitled to access to me but I did all that waiting around for men to determine what role I would play in their lives, if any, when whole time I could have just been like, you know what, I actually don't have space for you or any of this shit in my life. And like, Men have no problem letting go of women who no longer serve them. They will not hesitate to kick you out of their space if you're no longer providing whatever it is that drew them to you. So I had to learn to start moving like that to value my time and my energy and my attention and be unapologetic about dropping dead weight because... It really is that simple. Like, there's no reason to feel guilty about it. There's no reason to wonder what if because whatever that person is showing you in that moment, that's what you're gonna get. There's no reason getting for getting hung up on. You know, what if they change? They're not gonna change drop the dead weight. And the the common thread in all of these things I wish I had learned is that I needed to be taught how to prioritize myself over men. I put proximity to men over my own happiness in many, 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 many situations. And You know, no one was making me do it. No one forced me to overlook my needs and my desires and my wants. I did it because it was easy to slip into when you don't have practice doing anything else, and you you find yourself doing it without even questioning how you got there. And that's exactly how hegemony works. Thank you for listening to Not the Wifey Type the podcast. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe so you'll know when new episodes drop, and rate and review so others will know how much you love the show too. If you want to keep up with me personally, you can follow me on Instagram at NotTheWifeyType. Until next time, I'm reminding you to belong to yourself.